In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. When I was in seminary, our preaching professor, Bill Meal, used to insist that we read sermons by some of the great preachers uh, throughout time, um, just so we could get a sense of how they plied their trades. So we read sermons by John Donne and George Buttrick and William Sloan Coffin, uh, some of the great black preachers, James Forbes at Riverside and Jeremiah Wright, and some of the more contemporary women preachers, Barbara Brown Taylor, for example. But there was one sermon that each class had to read every year, and that is the sermon that Amy just read for us this morning. Now, we were a little surprised at that because we thought that was the scripture, the text upon which a sermon would be based, not the sermon itself. But no, it is a sermon. Matthew, the gospel writer, took an experience that the disciples had had with Jesus. And by the way, some ancient writers actually say that it was a dream uh, that Simon Peter had that he awoke from saying, it's a ghost. But Matthew took this experience with Jesus and he made it into a sermon. When Bill was finally uh, able to persuade us that this was a sermon, then we could actually get down to reading it together. And first off, we noticed um, how the story begins. Jesus compels his followers to get into a boat and go to the other side. So why? Um, why force the disciples to get into the boat? What's the problem here? Well, we know that the reason Jesus was on the side he was on um, was because he had been looking for some time alone, but he hadn't been able to find that, remember? The crowds had followed him. So maybe, having dealt with the crowds, he's saying to the disciples, get out of my face for a while. I, I need some time, some space alone, just to be with God. Or, Maybe he sent them ahead because there was some real danger. I think one of the reasons that Jesus so often withdraws in Matthew's gospel is that he is trying to avoid some of the government threats. Remember that uh, John the Baptist had only recently been beheaded. There was danger around every corner. Or maybe Jesus wanted the disciples to get away from the crowds who wanted to make him a king. At least that's what the Gospel of John indicates. Remember, he had just fed 5,000 people, and they were saying, hey, we've got a real breadwinner here. Let's make him a king. And Jesus didn't want the disciples to be influenced by that way of thinking. Nothing destroys a minister or a congregation faster than reading its own headlines. And so he sends them over to the other side. And having done th that, he goes up on a mountain alone to pray. So here is the scene. The disciples are now in the boat trying to make their way across to the western shore. But they're not having any luck. They're pulling at the oars. 
but the wind is blowing against them. So it's one yard forward, one yard back. The wind is stirring up the waves. The water is coming over the boat. So now some of the disciples are bailing while the others are pulling at the oars. And they are beginning to think that they might not make it. To make matters worse, it's dark. It's, it's as dark as midnight. So all through the night, they're pulling at the oars. They're bailing the water. They cry. They scream. They're beginning to think about their families and their children. Did I tell them that I love them? What have I left unfinished? I never expected it to end like this. It's a terrible scene. And of course, darkness exaggerates everything. A uh, hundred yards in the daytime looks like 10 miles at night. When you're not feeling well, it's always worse at night. Mama, there's somebody at the window. Mama comes in and turns on the light. It's just the shrubbery rubbing up against the screen. It's okay, but it's dark. So, just before dawn, somewhere probably between three and six in the morning, Jesus comes to them. He comes on the sea. In seminary, when we were reading at this point, um, our professor Bill was trying to get us to recognize the symbolism in the story, um, but we were just being silly. Boy, it, it really doesn't hurt if you know where the rocks are when you're trying to get across. Um, my sister has a boyfriend who th she thinks walks on water. I think he's kind of a dork. Uh, somebody began singing that part of Jesus Christ's superstar, Walk across my swimming pool. When we got through with all of our cuteness, finally we went back to the point. And the point is, only God can walk on the waves. That's what the Bible says in Job, in Isaiah, in Habakkuk, in the Psalms. It is God who walks on the storms. God who makes a path in the seas. And why? Just to show off a miracle? Hey, look what I can do? Of course not. Don't be so shallow. In ancient times, the sea was the place of evil. The evil monster, Leviathan, lived there. Sort of the Loch Ness monster of the Bible. The enemy of all that we know as good and right is there in the water. In the Bible, the water is the abode of all of the forces that are against us. And God walks on the sea. In other words, there is no power, there is no storm, there is no force in this world that God cannot conquer. There is no evil in this world over which God is not superior. So Jesus comes walking on the water and that is not to be understood as a miracle. Just listen. Jesus comes in the storm on the sea. He says, take heart, I am. Now, in English, we tend to translate those words, 
take heart, it is I. But in the Greek, it really says, I am. And those of you who have studied the Bible will remember those words as the first words that God uses to describe himself when Moses meets him at the burning bush. I am who I am. So do you see? God comes to them in the midst of the storm in the person of Jesus. And what happens? Well, at first, they can't believe it. It's a ghost, they say. And the truth is, from a distance, Jesus does indeed seem like a ghost. I know people who have never gotten close enough who have never made friends with Jesus. And so it always seems like he is out there, a a ghost-like thing. But Jesus gets closer. And Simon Peter says to him, if you are, tell me to come to you on the water. If you are. Do you recognize those words? Do you remember hearing them before in the story of Jesus out in the wilderness at the very beginning of his ministry? You remember Satan says to him, if you are the son of God. You see, the words of Simon Peter are the words of the tempter. I am putting you to the test, Jesus. If you really are the son of God, then do this. No wonder that just two chapters later, Jesus will say to Simon Peter, get behind me, Satan. So the fact that Simon Peter could walk on the water is no small thing. I have heard sermons, and probably you have, about how when Simon was focused on Jesus, he could walk, but when he took his eyes off of Jesus, he began to sink. And there is something to be said for those sermons. But do you understand what's really happening here? Simon Peter doesn't believe. He wants to put Jesus to the test. And in the attempt to test Jesus, he winds up tempting himself and sinking. You don't test God. So Jesus gets into the boat. And everything is all right. It's quiet. And the others fall down in that boat and they worship him. The sermon that Matthew preaches is a sermon to the church. It is a sermon for all of the followers of Jesus in all of our little boats, in all of our storms, who are trying to make it alone. The disciples were not alone. We know that, but they were trying to make it alone. And they couldn't. And that is such a hard lesson to learn. The church is never, you are never exempt from that temptation to go it alone. The prevailing illusion of our society of the self-made man. A church of five members is always praying. A church of 500 members, sometimes less aware of its needs. A redeveloping church 30 years ago is always amazed at what God is doing in its midst. 
a redeveloped congregation with so much already going for it, good programs, committed leadership, financially sound, may not be so amazed, but we should be because we will not, we cannot make it alone. Some people will say, you know, all these stories in the Bible, I don't know. I believed them when I was a kid. I went to Sunday school. I saw all those old pictures on the Sunday school walls. But I'm not a kid anymore. I, I don't know, you know, Jesus turning water into wine, Moses parting the sea, all this walking on the water stuff. I just don't believe that anymore. Okay. Well, let's just form a big circle. Let's get out some garbage bags from the storage room downstairs, and let's just put in them all the things that we don't believe anymore. We could fill a lot of bags. But the critical moment will come when we have to look at each other and say, now what is it that we do believe? What do I believe? Of course, I'm not a child anymore. I don't believe there are demons in the water. Nobody jumps off the high dive and says, look out for the demons below. We don't believe that anymore. Well, then where are the demons if they're not in the water? I know where they are. I know where the fears are. You don't believe in demons? Why are you so afraid? You know what jealousy is, right? It's the fear of the loss of love. Why are people today so greedy, only looking out for themselves? It's about fear. It's the fear of insecurity. Why do children cheat in school? It's the fear of failure. Why do people of any age lie? It's the fear of punishment, fear. There are some people who will stay on the phone literally all day just to be sure someone is out there. What are you afraid of? A moment alone? Thunderstorm strikes, knocking out the television and the radio. What are we going to do? It's not just our children and our grandchildren who are addicted to these devices, you know. Labor Day weekend, a time for us to rest from our labors. Why do we always need to keep ourselves so busy? Somebody says to you, how are you? What's the first thing you respond? I'm so busy. What are we afraid would happen if we actually slowed down? We were just on vacation up north. I love to take those little flat rocks and skim them across the water. Sometimes if you get a good one, it'll skip, I don't know, five, six times. But I don't care how many times it skips, when it slows down, is that what we're afraid of? Why do we have to work so hard at having a good time all of the time? Because otherwise we might get depressed? I don't believe there are demons in the water anymore. I'm not a child. I wish they were in the water, but that's not where they are. 
friend of mine talks about celebrating Christmas in his family a few years ago. This was a generous family, uh, so they had lots of means to provide these wonderful gifts. He said um, it was just amazing. They, they, you know how this works? They blew through the gifts in all of about three minutes. There were lavish gifts everywhere. Before the wrapping paper had even been stuffed back in those garbage bags, one of the kids, surrounded by these toys, looked up and said, can we rent a video today? Wow. I wish the demons were in the water. I don't know how to say it any more clearly. In the boat, and we are, all of us, in the boat. We can give each other pep talks. We'll make it. Some of you bail. We're going to make it. We can, uh, we can start whistling that Gilbert and Sullivan King and I tune. Whenever I feel afraid, I hold my head erect and I whistle a happy tune so no one will suspect I'm afraid. But the plain fact is, without trust in God, we're not going to make it to the other shore. Not you, not me, not this church, not the church, not this nation. Because fear is epidemic in our society today. In fact, there is a whole campaign of fear that is targeting you for the next two months. But if we trust in God, then the Apostle Paul says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. And amen.